Hello, and welcome to the Film Stage Show spin-off podcast, Intermission. I'm your host, Michael Snydell, and this is a podcast where a guest picks one film available on streaming that can be loosely defined as arthouse, foreign, or experimental, and we talk about it. The podcast begins with why the guests pick the film, and then it can go anywhere. Sometimes the conversation is entirely about the film, and other times it leads to entirely different subjects. If you enjoy this podcast or would like to support any of the other podcasts in the Film Stage family, we would love if you would contribute to the Film Stage show Patreon or even write a review for the show on your favorite podcast platform. It helps us a lot in getting to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Movie premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. And there will always be something new to discover. With Movie, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anywhere, anytime. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hello, I am Michael Snydell, and you are listening to Intermission, which is a spinoff podcast of the Film Stage Show. Um, on this podcast, a guest picks one film that is streaming, uh, that is either foreign, art house, or experimental, and those are all very broad categories. As uh, this has been discussed a little bit, given some of the some of the requests that I've had from guests thus far, but. Today, I am talking to Ben Sachs about uh, Martine Rettman's uh, Two Shots Fired, which is uh, currently part of the catalog at, on Mubi right now, where they have, I believe, all of Martine's uh, films currently streaming. All of his narrative films. All of his and narrative he, films. Yeah, oh, his documentaries me. aren't on there. Yes, so all of his narrative films are streaming on there. And uh, Ben, would you like to introduce yourself today? I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, yeah, why not? Um, my name's Ben Sachs. I've been writing about movies in Chicago since uh, 2007. I was one of the first contributors to a website called cinephile.info. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E dot info. Um, and that site started around uh, drawing attention to underground and out-of-the-way screenings in the Chicago area. Starting in 2010, I wrote for the Chicago Reader. Uh, start from 2011 to late 2015, I was writing a regular blog for the Reader website, which ran anywhere from once to five times a week. And uh, in 2016, I went back to school, 
got my master's degree in special education, and now I work for uh, Chicago Public Schools in addition to continuing to write about film now and then. Today, we're going to speak about uh, the aforementioned uh, two shots fired from Argentinian director Martin. I, I believe it's Retman, we but... Yeah, we were just talking <laughs> about this. I thought it was Reitman. He says Retman. Tomato, tomato. Sure. But either way, we mean obviously no disrespect uh, to his filmography. And in fact, we want to shine a light on it. So to start, Ben, why, why did you pick this particular film to talk about? Well... I think the most exciting viewing I've done under quarantine has been catching up with uh, Argentine cinema of the last 10, 20 years. After kind of the the wave in the early to mid-aughts with Lisandro and Alonzo and Lucretia Martel, I kind of lost track of new developments that were going on. So, you know, I didn't see any of uh, Mariano Yin- Inas's films uh, until uh, earlier this year when I was able to stream La Flor in its entirety, um, and then going back and catching up with him and Alejo Mogiansky and uh, uh, Laura Sotorella and Martin Reitman or Retman really predates all of the filmmakers I'm talking about. Uh, his first films from the early '90s, and he was writing novels before that. Hmm. I, I believe he continues to to write literature as well as make films. But I, I didn't catch up with, with any of his work until I went on this whole Argentine phase. And of all the filmmakers I've discovered in this these few months, Retman's the one I think I've connected with the most. And Two Shots Fired, which was his first film, well, his first narrative film after an 11-year break, um, was, I guess, one of the the major events in Argentine cinema of the last 10 years, this, this triumphant return. But like all of Retman's films, it's, uh, it's a very complicated narrative presented with a uh, kind of deceptively straightforward style, almost uh, deadpan, I guess a lot of people would say. And the movie begins, I, I guess I'll start there, begins sure. where a 16-year-old boy during his winter break from school finds a gun in his mother's tool shed and for no reason at all shoots himself once in the head and once in the stomach and then magically survives. And the rest of the movie is sort of about the fallout of this I guess miracle, you would say, um, catching up with the uh, the main character's older brother, that brother's girlfriend, the men's mother, and and discovering this whole little social circle that develops around the the main character, his brother, and then in the last third of the film, it does something very unexpected and strange. The uh, the boy's mother uh, decides to take a vacation. And the film just abandons all the other characters and follows this woman as she goes on a trip to the seaside with um, her younger son's music teacher and another woman they meet online. And for me, this this switch in perspective is one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in a movie, uh, certainly a film comedy, where we don't hmm. think of narrative form as being as essential. But I think it speaks to what makes Retman a great filmmaker, how he's switching perspective. Because throughout this this film, uh, and all of Retman's films really, strangers come together and form these very tight-knit bonds uh, that are almost like familial relationships. But also they, they fall apart just as quickly. And so what 
Rettman does is he's kind of like makes the movie do what his characters does. We get very close to a certain set of characters and then we break off and follow someone else. And I think ultimately this, this movie speaking to a very contemporary spiritual condition um, that it's uh, I think in a way it's a movie about the internet, how we form these bonds with, strangers or people we don't know i mean our our conversation is mediated by a computer right now sort of an example of it but we're able to form these groups of people um and you see that uh in one of the very funny uh subplot involving the the young man who shoots himself and he's part of a uh, a classical recorder music ensemble he plays chamber yes. music with Ancient three other chamber music yeah <laughs> they're they're all about 18th or 17th and 18th century music i think yes and they take it very seriously right and when the uh the main character mariano i think it's is it mariano or marciano it's mariano, mariano. is, is mariano. what i have so here. when mariano yeah. His girlfriend at the beginning of the movie, in the fashion of Retman's characters, breaks up with him. She had been part of the group. She needs to be replaced. And the group goes through this very, uh, very scrutinizing process to, to pick a new member. But that's, you know, kind of like in miniature what the Internet does. It forms these strange groups of people with similar obsessions who take their their personal obsessions very seriously. But. You know, ultimately, the the bonds that we make in these situations, they're not lasting. There's nothing really pulling people together. And I think what's so amazing about Two Shots Fired is that Rettman is speaking to how these relationships are formed and, and fall apart. But he's he almost never mentions the Internet in the film. I mean, it's like the structuring absence of the whole movie. There's one reference to the internet early on when the, the, the boy's dog runs away, his older brother posts an ad online. And yeah. even there, you know, we have this weird amalgamation of like online culture and like a neighborhood news bulletin. Um, but there, after that, there's really only one or two other mentions of the internet in, in the movie. The I believe he's Argentine, the critic uh, Cantine, Cantine? Is just one name. Looks like Quentin, but with an I instead of an E. Quentin. He wrote a piece on Retman for Film Comment uh, when Two Shots Fired came out, and he speculated that it may have been an earlier script from perhaps the early 2000s, which was when uh, Retman had made his last narrative film before this one, because it, it takes place in a world where people aren't overwhelmed by cell phones all the time. They're not constantly checking their computer. There's something about it that feels like it's not quite about the present. And that's something that uh, Contine noted. But for me, I, I I love that it's it's a film about the internet that, that doesn't actually have to talk about it. It's it's all through metaphor. And and very funny metaphors. I mean, I'm making the movie sound very heavy, but another really remarkable thing about it is just how light Retman's touch is. He's just a natural comic filmmaker. All of his movies are very funny. And uh, his his, uh, his sense of humor is, uh, is is something I really connect with it's it's a very um very south american sense of humor there's there's a taste for yeah. absurdity and non sequitur and things that don't make sense but but it's it's very graceful you know with, with so much 
Argentine comic cinema, I just I just think of a, a tango. You know, just the film is just dancing for you because it proceeds so lightly and with such a, a gentle touch. You know, the his camera setups don't really call attention to themselves. They're very simple. Uh, they they have all the visual information that you need, but they still have graceful touches. Like I, I love that match cut in in Silvia Prieto where they're watching the dating show and uh, a dating show in a small restaurant, and and then the next shot uses a match cut where the TV's in a totally different location. Mm. Like I, I, every once in a while, I, I think the I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. I just uh, I, I love the way that he uses space and keeps converting function in like, you know, mm. in very surreal touches. I, I love, for instance, in uh, Two Shots Fired, where he says, Let, let's go have couch therapy. <laughs> and they sit there for about 10 seconds and oh, then that's return right. to and the you desk. Can, you can go back to the chair now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, a Retman touch. These uh, and his dialogue is wonderful, too. There's there's one line I couldn't stop quoting after uh, I saw it the first time when Mariano's older brother, Ezekiel, is over at the house of uh, two young women. And they think they had met before at a Halloween party the previous year. And yes. <laughs> and he says, oh, that's right. I, and then he, he turns to one of the girls and he says, did anything happen between us at that party? I'm sorry. I was on acid and I was wearing a mask as well. Yeah, the mask bit was especially... Uh... It seemed especially unrelated, but but oh yeah, it's it's yes. perfect. Like it's it's. Uh, I mean, there's kind of a druggy logic to Retman's work as well. Oh. I mean, like you mentioned, Sylvia Prieto. I mean, the main character's decision to stop smoking pot is what structures that whole film. And sure. then, but then you know the running gags that everyone around her is trying to get her high. Did you see Shakti? His uh, I, short I have from not. last year. Oh, it's it's no. just twenty minutes. You can catch sure. up with it. Uh, pretty quickly, but the the main character of that is constantly high too. So yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a doper humor to Retton, but it's subtle. It's not a it's not a Cheech and Chong thing, for instance. No, I I think oh this is this is fascinating that you bring up the the internet as as a structuring absence because I, I mean I think it's it's fascinating the repeated re- repeated kind of gags with the cell phone and and the ways that it's uh, it's very interesting that you mention spiritual condition as so much of this film is is kind of disaffected and as much as we've talked about how the film begins with an attempted suicide I, you know it does have this digressive discursive or discursive uh, quality to it. I, I think what's really interesting about it and something I was thinking a lot about in terms of the movement is at times it uses incidents as kind of an inflection point to say, all right, we're going to switch to this character. But then there's other moments where a character has to into it something to move forward. And, like, they have to intuit in in emotional ways. Like, or or I should rather say the audience is required to intuit. Mm. You you think, for instance, about the the person who uh, replaces Mariano's girlfriend in the quartet. Mm. Um, Although you might be able to say it's quintet, considering that he's doubling. Yeah, yeah, because there's a bullet still lodged in one of his lungs. and I I love it. It makes the notes come out doubled. Yeah. For instance, they don't offer any 
obvious visual indicator that Lucia is going to start staying with uh, Mariano's mother. It's just clear through the chore, the fact that she's moving that dog food. Like, uh, Like, for being a film that is so emphatic... No, I guess how it moves, like in in its camera movement, there's a certain harsh and and abrupt and obviously, you know, very, also very fluid, like in no way feels awkward or anything like that. Um, And it's that comic sensibility you're talking about, but it's also, yeah, it it, it also requires you to keep up with it in in a way that's not, that's not totally like intellectual or as like, uh, as concrete as, as what you're seeing and what's being riffed in front of you. If sure. you, if you... It's not a, it's not a centralized film because the development is constantly being thwarted. Yeah. I, I, that's about all I have to say about that. But Yeah. I, I guess I'd like to, to speak a little bit more about uh, that structuring absence. I, I'm curious, what do you make of, to speak of uh, a, a, te- a piece of technology that we already spoke about. What do you make of the fixation on the phone I, and the fact that oftentimes it's either out of battery or, in fact, a handheld phone <laughs> that was mistaken That's for right. a cell phone? That's one of those like early 2000s touches um, <laughs> where people are still confusing cordless landline phones with cell phones. I remember when I was in college, it was the summer of 2004, I worked at a deli on the uh, sort of the the borderline between uh, St. Paul, Minnesota and a suburb. And there's one woman who lived in the neighborhood and she'd come in every day or we'd see her walking down the street and she'd be talking on, on one of those cordless handsets like it was a cell phone, but she was clearly out of range of her house. I thought of her. Do you think she was just trying to draw attention to her herself in a way? Like a, she might have just been crazy too. I don't know. Sure, I, I suppose that's a that's a certain possibility as well. But it's it's kind of compelling to try to project some other <laughs> more poetic uh, meaning on it potentially. In that same way, I guess uh, I, I find the use of voiceover in this film uh, so fascinating in the sense that. The dialogue is often very direct, but then you have voiceover that repeats it in, in you know, m- more of like a grocery list way. <laughs> like mm. it's, it's an inventory of things that you just watched. Um, and, and that was something I never quite could find. That happens in, in all of Retman's films, I think. I know that all of them are narrated uh, well, all, all four of, and Shakti too, the short. Uh, so yeah, I guess all of his narrative films have voiceover narration. I mean, it's weird because that's normally like something that brings us closer to a character if they can tell us something. But really when Mariano talks to us directly, he's, like you said, he's just reiterating what we've already seen most of the time, or he tells us what's about to happen that we, like, um, I don't know. It's it's uh, it might just be a mannerist thing. Um, hmm. At the same time, 
there's something that's mysterious about Mariano through the whole movie. You know, we never learn why he shoots himself and he's he's not depressed before he shoots himself. He's not depressed after he's but he's not apathetic either. You know, he's not he's not walking around like Buster Keaton or anything. It, what we think would would bring us closer to him is just another closed door. Hmm. And, and and I guess that would go back to the film, you know, bringing us close to characters, making us feel like we know them, but but only just so that there's there's still something between us. And I don't know, maybe the voiceover is just a red herring. Maybe he thinks it's funny, but I mean, he's he's certainly not using it conventionally. No, I, I, I think you're uh, to, to piggyback on what you're saying on uh Mariano as, as well. I, I, there's something – you are right that, you know, I mean, he does have that – when he's speaking to the doctor, he has that lovely uh, quip where he says it was an impulse. It was very hot speaking mm. to his rationale of, of why he um, – yeah, why he – but then I, I think there's also something really, really fascinating to me related to class there mm. um, in the sense that – you know, I'm not sure whether this is my somewhat limited experience with Argentinian cinema, but I couldn't help but go to Lucretia Martel's The Headless Woman. And this isn't necessarily about privilege, but I do think there is an absence of what of how Mariano lives his life in a way that like, you know, he's he's part of this quartet that doesn't uh, pay money. He's always he's ordering only fast food. He's still a still a high schooler. Do we ever learn what his mother? Is he is sixteen. Yeah. She's a Do lawyer. Have... Oh, she's a lawyer. She's a lawyer. Yeah. Oh, I missed. Okay, that. you're okay. right. You're right. He's sixteen. I'm sorry. I I, uh, I forgot about that detail. But I still find something about the way that class figures into the film. The the way that they keep going to this beach apartment. But mm-hmm. then the fact that the woman they meet online seems to, I'm, I'm speculating, but at least the part of uh, Buenos Aires, I believe they're in, does seem to be a little bit more run down or lower middle class or even, it, it's not quite the ennui of privilege in <laughs> the same way of like no, headless woman, but there's no, something they're... still, yeah. Well, they're... They're tied to certain middle class conventions, like the the beach apartment. But they they need people to go with them. You know, they they uh, they they have friends who need to crash at their place when they go to the beach together. So so there are the middle class conventions on the one hand, but also uh, you know times where you can see that that they're they're not rolling in it you know but that's kind of the uh the milieu of of all of retman's films i guess uh have you have you watched the magic gloves no the uh, the two i got to is uh sylvia oh, that's cool and, that's cool yeah um well the magic gloves that's from 2003 it's it's another movie it, it kind of sets the stage for uh, Two Shots Fired, and that's this very complicated narrative about different people coming together in unexpected ways. But 
the the second half of the movie is about how the three main characters who are a taxi driver, a failed heavy metal musician and his porn star brother um, go into business together, buying gloves wholesale and trying to sell them you know, back and, and make deals and make money. And the that movie is about how this business plan kind of falls apart at the end. But again, it's, you know, these guys are in a position where they can, they have enough money to invest, but they can't invest anything really significant, you know? So, so hence, you know, spending what was so like something like $7,000 on shipments of gloves. So I, I have to assume that the lower middle class is, is a world that, that Rettman knows very well. And I think he presents it very sympathetically. I don't think he would call his characters privileged. I don't, they're, they're maybe a little insulated. I mean, like you never really see people who are objectively poor in his films, but you never see anyone who's very rich either. It's like, you know, kind of this, the sameness we encounter online, you know, we, we gravitate towards people who are like ourselves, but you know, this is true even of Rettman's first film, which is from 92 and, you know, predates the invasion of the Internet into all aspects of life. So I think it's, for me, like a cocoon quality, uh, not the movie cocoon. I mean, like a literal cocoon, sure. you know, a warm place where you can nestle and and tuck yourself away from the world. And, yeah, I guess that's that's another reason why his films speak to me. You know, I'm, I grew up solidly middle class i guess neither upper nor lower which is kind of a rare thing nowadays i guess but you know i i have a certain affection for my childhood and that that world that i came into the kind of world where people have like a a dining room that they never eaten um and and don't know why like there's a poetry to that world that retman captures that not a lot of other people want to capture with such poetic affection. Um, have you ever read Walter Benjamin's memoir about his childhood? No. The translation I read is just called Berlin Childhood around 1900. And I mean, the way he describes his middle class childhood and trying to recapture his first memories coming of age in this time of, you know, a relatively uneventful time in in Western history and just being able to kind of luxuriate in this middle-class existence. And it's the same cocoon-like quality in that book, even though, you know, this being Walter Benjamin, he's tracing it to all these philosophical concepts in our sense of self. And, but I kind of get the same thing from Rettman, just the insular yet nurturing uh side of lower to middle middle class life and and the, and it's expressed in Rettman's films in in little ways you know like just the memory of of driving the few hours to your your beach abode with relative strangers or um like the the way that uh, the mother changes homes with her her sons halfway through the movie sure. that like she just would rather live in a small apartment because she doesn't have anyone but just being able to have like a second residence that you don't really care about and and take advantage of that it's it's just very poetic to me and uh and sympathetic for something that is truly uncool 
Yeah, I I think that that that's like the heart of of Rettman's charm for me. It's so in that sense. um, I mean, you use the the characterization of deadpan surrealism, which which is something I've seen a number of critics use to describe the style. Do you find that one of one of my bet noirs? I I can't I I can't stand the the misapplication of the word surrealism. I mean, like it, it, it's 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 a clearly defined artistic movement. It had like a manifesto. It, you know, not not everything that's absurd is surreal. Sure. Uh, sorry, that was that was a total no, no, no. I, I, I welcome the I, I welcome the uh, not the rantics because that makes it sound like it's not articulate. But I I am happy to hear people who you know push back on those characterizations if they find them disingenuous or inaccurate well so deadpan yes surreal no um i mean i think there's i mean renee magritte was very very affectionate towards lower middle class life and he's you know one of the greatest surrealists so i don't know maybe there is something there but the french surrealist painters were all about like anarchy and and surrealist art is a revolutionary force. But the Belgian sure. surrealists like Magritte were much more straight-laced and conformist. You know, Magritte worked in advertising for most of his adult life. He didn't live off his paintings. So he had like a very, very normal existence, you know, worked a nine-to-five job and went home every night. And, and uh, my wife and I were at a Magritte exhibit in San Francisco a few years ago. So that this is where I learned it. The Greek and his, uh, his, his colleagues thought that like the most surrealist normalcy defying thing you could do was to be as normal as possible. Hmm. That like you, you just consumed normalcy so you could spit out abnormality. Um, (laughs) but this is, this is just one branch of the surrealist movement. And, yeah, I guess if if Rettman is surrealist in a way, it's it's closer to that Belgian tradition. But another overused term in arts criticism is magic realism. But I mean, if, sure. I guess as you know, an Argentine writer, he's uh, at least has more claim to it than others. But yeah, just the fact that Mariano should be dead at the beginning of the movie and isn't for no good reason. That's kind of a uh, well it is a a non-naturalistic touch I, this is this is really interesting to me because i think the more we talk about this and the way you're speaking about its certain coziness and its certain you know um you know kind of fluency with these uh the ways that even these strangers kind of get along is making me feel that it's not that I felt this film had an acidity or or anything, but there was a certain chaos is too strong a a word, but well, pessimism, uh, a certain pessimism. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was attributing a certain cynicism to some of the film, but I actually really like your characterization of the initial scene as, as a miracle because I think it does place some of these moments that are inherently strange. I, I mean, you think about the, the fact that when he when Mariana returns from the hospital, very few people ask him directly uh, about mm. how he's doing. You know, you see individual scenes of his mother, um, you know, 
putting all the sharp objects mm. in, in a bag. You, you see um, his brother, you know, having a timer that like every six hours he's supposed to give his his brother the pills, which they then I, I love hilariously use later to determine when while they're sunbathing, when they should flip over. But but either anyway, like those those things, I saw a certain anarchy too. like even if it's a gentle anarchy. I'm realizing they're they're kind of warm. They they do also show people who care about each other, even if there is like a certain diffuse quality uh, to uh, to all of these uh, these characters. I, I I think yeah, it's it, it's weird. I I I I know there are certain things that actually go against that as well. Uh, sure. Well, I I think. You're identifying a side of of Retman's art, and and I think it exists in a constant tension with an affection and even a kind of utopian sensibility. And this is what makes his work just so uh, so so wonderful for me, and and why I get so much out of it. There there's a cynical impulse and an extremely optimistic one, and they're constantly in conflict. Maybe conflict's too strong of a word. They're they're creating friction with each other. Sure. So. Like, on the one hand, I, I get so much pleasure out of his movies. I find them very funny. I find them very nice to look at because they're, they're arranged so, so nicely. But nobody's happy in them. His characters are all depressives. Yeah. They seem most happy taking naps, for instance. The 72-hour yeah. nap that his, his mother takes. Yeah. You know, she, she seems like that was... I, you know, she's most annoyed after that about the fact that her towel is still wet, like, <laughs> which is. Uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah. like, Redman's characters are all depressives, but the movies are very funny. And just like you say, his characters are capable of caring for one another. That's true. But at the same time, they also vanish from each other's lives without any notice. You know, like Mariano's girlfriend just quitting the the ensemble and breaking up with him near the beginning of the movie. Sure. And then at, at the very end of the film, the film ends in a very ambiguous note when Mariano's brother Ezekiel is going to meet the, the young woman that he's been getting involved with through the movie and she's not there. And then that, and that's just how it ends. We just have to live with that broken connection. But again, this is this is internet culture. We are capable of of taking deep interests in others, but we but there there's no sense of obligation. It's not like a real family. Mm. We're not actually bound to each other. I, I can't picture Retman's characters taking care of each other when they're sick, for instance. <laughs> like they're sure they're there for each other when it's convenient and they happen to be around. But if, if something else pulls them in a different direction, then, you know, the, the, that's where they go. It's so, you know, we have these these moments of connection, but they're fleeting and and there's there's no guarantee that they'll last. And, and, you know, again, this gets back to what I think is a poetic sensibility, because it's it's not. Because it, it's it's not like in narrative cinema where we're, we're constantly hoping for development. It's transient in the case of Retman's characters. I mean, not that, you know, this is totally new. Antonioni was doing stuff like this uh, 60 years ago and, and more. But to get that idea across in such a sunny manner, that feels 
unique to me. Hmm. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, I, I think there's really no one else like Ratman. You know, it, there are like superficial comparisons I think you could make to like Jim Jarmusch or uh, Aki Korsmaki. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of, you know, the, the humor and the very precise visual language. But I, I don't get the same kind of like transience, the same, that, that same friction with something very, very cynical like I get in Retman's work. I mean, I, I love Jarmusch and Korismaki, but I, I just mean that the, he's different from them, despite you know maybe looking similar. No, I, I, I definitely, I could definitely see Jarmusch and, and especially Korismaki. I, I think those do certainly too kind of had that rhythmic continuity mm-hmm. that uh, that um, that uh, Reitman, you know, likes uh, from moment. To moment, I, I, I hesitate to obviously uh, bring in any generalizations or anything, but as someone who really did dig into Argentinian cinema, I mean, are you able to speak about it in, in any larger shared qualities? I mean, do you get a sense that Reitman is a little bit of an outlier, or is, is this already getting into a conversation of trying to, uh, you know, do ad hoc connections, for instance? Well, I mean, the impression I get is that Reitman was, I mean, he predates all of the new Argentine cinema of the 21st century because he was sure. I mean he actually made some shorts in the late 80s I haven't seen those those aren't on movie I don't know if they're any good but he was starting to figure out a way to make a very personal independent cinema in Argentina well before a lot of people so I think for the first wave of the new Argentine cinema with Alonso and Martel and then the second wave of Inas and all of them I think if there's any direct influence from Retman. It's in terms of, uh, you know, how to get this kind of movie made. I think hmm. they look up to him as like, you know, just like how Jean-Pierre Melville influenced the French New Wave. Not sure. so much in like sensibility, but the fact that you could make movies this personal, this cheaply and, and achieve such success with it. But I, I, I think the, the kind of sweet and sour humor is just very Argentine. The kind of absurd touches, I see those in, in an older Argentine filmmaker. Uh, do you know Aliseo Subiela? No, I, I'm not familiar he, with that. most famous for a movie called Man Facing Southeast. It was kind of an Argentine, it was, it was a, a worldwide sleeper hit in the mid-80s. It was um, unofficially remade as the Kevin Spacey movie K-Pax. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, which I hear is awful, but Man Facing Southeast is a wonderful film. <laughs> um, huh. It's uh, very funny, very odd. And uh, his second or third feature, The Last Images of the Shipwreck, is is a wonderful film too, which even more closely tied to the magic realist literary tradition of Argentina. And so I guess when I think about Retman, and, and not to diminish him as a visual storyteller, but I the connections I think of with him are more literary than cinematic. I think more of of Argentine writers, or not necessarily Argentine, but just that whole southern cone region of Argentina, uh, Uruguay, and Chile. Like Julio Cortazar seems like a you know very likely influence on Retman's sensibility and other people who are writing in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But 
I mean, certainly Retman gets along with the younger Argentine filmmakers because there there are those uh, because Two Shots Fired features both Laura Paredes, who's one of the four yes. lead actresses of La Flor, and also Walter Jacob. He's the bearded guy in the music ensemble. He's in like every uh, second second wave new Argentine cinema movie. That guy <laughs> is just axiomatic in in like the Argentine art cinema in the last 10 years. So I see with the casting of those two kind of like, uh, you know, tipping of the hat to the the filmmakers who've come in his way. But yeah, as, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know who his, uh, his cinematic influences or, you know, direct, uh, proteges are yeah I, I i know it's it's not always easy to draw those connections but especially as someone you know has you know maybe didn't do a survey but especially dug into it and I, I i loathe that i am going to wikipedia here as i can't seem to find the original source I but I, <laughs> I like that uh retman apparently he's quoted here as saying uh when i made rapado I felt that Argentine cinema had too much dialogue and bad dialogue at that. I hate adornments. I hate artifice. I hate anything that's unnecessary because there really is nothing beyond the screen. Hmm. At, at the risk of making too much of that quote, it's still kind of fascinating in elaborating his own philosophy <laughs> uh, uh, towards his own sensibility because it almost sounds like something Robert Brisson would have said. Yes, yes, it, it is. It sounds very Brisson, but but Brisson also wouldn't be interested. At least in my experience, I wouldn't necessarily characterize Brisson as like plainly labyrinthian in the way I would I, I would call a, a Retman. Um, like, there's just something. It's fascinating to me that he considers, you know, he's almost considering himself like a, a, a part of minimalism when even if the dialogue is so to the point, his, his structures are anything but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's a, another, you know, wonderful friction in the work. I, I remember I had a uh, a college professor who uh, was a Shakespeare scholar, though I didn't have him for a class on Shakespeare. But he he said that he preferred Shakespeare's comedies to his tragedies. Mm. And he said that the greatness of Shakespeare's comedies is that this is a person who could knock you out with one punch. And he just chooses to gently slap you on the face. <laughs> and... You know, that's sort of like what Retman's doing with his visual style. Like, you know, he knows how complicated a movie can be. He's just, he's choosing to just gently slap you with the style. That's interesting, too, that you were speaking a little bit about his production style. Because I noticed, I found it very interesting that the first time that Mariano and his brother and their their friends, which I say in quotation marks, as they really <laughs> are acquaintances. Uh, the first time they say they're going to the beach, they don't show the beach. They show the roof of uh, the apartment I believe mm. they're at. And yeah. I found it I found it then fascinating that I was expecting, you know, an echo of that later on with his mother and their friends. But they're actually on the beach, <laughs> and you know they're. You know, it, they don't seem like they're, you know, having the time of their life or anything, but... Uh, no one ever is in a Redmond film. I mean, the, no. 
the uh, one of the great running gags of the magic gloves is that the the taxi driver, who's the movie's narrator, he's this like overweight thirty six year old cab driver, but like his favorite hobby is going to discos, and like he just. He's just such a sad sack. But then, like, every now and then, Redman will just cut to a scene in a disco. But, but yeah, I mean, the joke is that, like, nobody seems happy there. It's... I mean, that's that's interesting then as the opening seconds of this is, like, a sublime, strobing club scene but where he – where Mariano is, like, demonstrating the most energy we see in, in the entire mm-hmm. film, you know, just yeah. flailing around – but this is sorry. Just to be clear, this is the film that he came to after eleven years. Uh, well, correct? Not exactly. I mean, he made the Magic Gloves in two thousand three, and then he co-directed two short documentaries. One okay. in one in like the mid aughts, one in the late aughts, or maybe around twenty ten. I don't really know what else he was doing at that time. Maybe he was writing. Um, I know that none of his books have been translated into English, which is a bummer. I would because I don't read Spanish, uh, but I would, sure. I would love to to read his books. Um, you know, Silvia Prieto was based on a novel of his. It was oh, a book. Was it? Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so was Rapado. But yeah, for whatever reason, he just didn't make a feature length narrative film again for for those eleven years. And then, I mean, wonderfully, you know, he made this short last year, uh, Shakti which is also in that movie collection. And, you know, it's it's like, it's similar to Two Shots Fired in that, like, you don't really know when it takes place. It could be, like, any time in the last 30 years. So I I get this sense of Fretman just kind of, you know, he's one of those filmmakers where his films take place in his time, not hmm. anyone else's time. Because the work, I mean, ever since the earliest one that I've seen, it's, it's incredibly consistent. You know, same humor, same tone, same... Uh, approach to to creating shots he's one of those filmmakers who's kind of created his his own little world just like i mean you can fill in many great filmmakers there i don't need to name any but all of all of his films you know take place in this the same little portion of the world that he's imagined and again that's that's something that i feel like happens a lot more in in literature than in cinema because you're not as dependent on images of the real world um, to to create your own. It is fascinating to keep going back to that, that literary quality and and particularly how that relates then. I I just can't keep, I I keep going back to uh, that quote because it's just so strange as as this is, is such a dense film. I, I mean, you'd have a hard time, you know, really pulling a lot of, content <laughs> in a way from the conversations that are had mm. in this film that they're really about how to get a character from one place to the to the next that, that, that transience you're speaking about but they you know they, they nonetheless i guess in that way do communicate that that inner uh inner monologue in a way that does feel very literary literary in such a you know clip cinematic way, reads all the more mysteriously. I, I think mm-hmm. is what as you were suggesting earlier. 
there any final things that you wanted to speak about or anything else you think we didn't mention? The the Southern Cone sensibility in cinema is something that I've, I've cared a lot about, gosh, ever since I started writing about movies professionally. Like, I'm a, a huge fan of the comedies of Uruguay as well, which, I mean, that could be a two-hour, 45-minute conversation. There's uh, the humor of that part of the world seems so... Uh, self-effacing and modest and and dry. I mean, this comes through in the films of uh, Federico Veroge, who I think is one of the greatest comic directors in the world right now. He's from Uruguay. But most of the, the Uruguayan comic directors, this comes through in, in Chilean comedies too. I think I wrote once that the kind of the central joke of all of the comedy from this part of the world is that even when life is wonderful, it still sucks. And this is just our, our lot that when we're alive, we just have to reconcile with disappointment and uh, depression and broken promises and, you know, all this, this crappy stuff. And I guess the joke for people in this part of the world is that these are not aberrations. This is life. And I guess if if you can't see the humor in that stuff, then uh, then it's, it must be a lot harder to be alive, I guess. You know, I, I've been exploring Argentine cinema in particular these last several months, but I, I will never turn down a comedy from Argentina, Uruguay, or Chile. Just because I, I find these to be some of the most life-affirming movies, and not in a sentimental way. But, you know, things you just never see in North American cinema that comes out for just this poetry in the everyday that South American writers are so good at, at capturing. But I, I think that's as much a part of, of Southern Cone humor, you know, finding beauty in things even when they suck. And... You know, I'm just I'm just so glad that so many of these movies exist. And and I'm sure I'll be watching them for the rest of my life because they're just sort of my go to pick me ups. I mean, that makes that makes total sense. I mean, given, as you're saying, the certain sentimentality or, you know, just outright cynicism of, of a lot of American comedy uh, that there is a certain. Yeah, I, I mean, paradoxical optimism uh, to to uh, these films and two shots fired, which at the time, you know, I was tangled, or excuse me, naughty in a way that I don't think I fully uh, grasped its, you know, its, its emotional textures in a way until we're speaking about it now. Um, and I, I I admit that it's it's certainly a, a blind spot for me. But, I mean, that does kind of bring me... That's wonderful. You get to see all this stuff for the first time. That leads me into my last final question before we uh, say... And um, so at the end of every episode, I like to ask the guests, what would be, if listeners liked this film, whether you are going to speak to other Retmen, whether you're going to speak to other Argentinian directors or uh, other directors in in that part of the world, um, what... R-I-Y-L, as they say in record stores, right? Yes, uh, Exactly. 
Yeah. Well, I know you've said a lot of them, but I, I just yeah. Wanna so force I guess just you to, to reiterate. Uh, sure. Moving backwards in time, you know, another great uh, Argentine comic director is Eliseo Subiela, um, who's still working, still makes movies every few years. And then, you know, move forward. Um, the four Raitman features and one short, those are all on Mubi. And if you have a yeah. Mubi subscription, you can also watch a lot of contemporary Argentine films, including Extraordinary Stories by uh, Mariano Yunus. That's a pretty significant one. Castro by Alejo Mogiansky. Ostende by Laura Sotorella. Does the apostate fall into... Uh, well, this... The Apostate is uh, a Spanish film directed by the Uruguayan direct filmmaker Federico Veroge. I mean, he is one of the other uh, directors working right now whose sensibility, I'd say, is close to Retman's. Um, okay. The Apostate is a very special movie. That's actually free on Tubi right now. Yes. In addition to uh, his film, A Useful Life. I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, okay. gosh. How can you be a living film critic and not watching <laughs> Useful Life? That is a love letter to film criticism and film programming. It stars uh, one of the more eminent uh, film critics in Montevideo. He plays the programmer at a rundown Cinematheque. It is a charming and melancholy film. It's only 65 minutes. You could, you know, watch it twice in a night. Um, <laughs> but gosh, I could have talked to you for a few hours about Veyroge. Uh, I, I don't know if it's Veyro or Veyroge. It's V-E-I-R-O-J. Yes, I've, I've definitely seen that name before. And obviously I, I was familiar with the apostate, but I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Well... Subject for further research. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think that's. I think those are plenty of other recommendations. If if you've made it this far, you know you've been taking notes. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm taking notes right here. <laughs> oh, lovely. Um, even though I'm I'm showing all of my uh, my shameful blind spots, which we could certainly spend we all hours speaking spots. about. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't know. I shouldn't get up on a soapbox, but. I, I think one of the one of the more frustrating things in in film criticism now is that we're not acknowledging our blind spots hmm. um, because y you start watching films from any other country in the world. I mean, save for France or England or Japan, you know, countries whose film history is very, very well known to us. When you yeah. start catching up with the film history of, of most other countries, you discover there's you know, entire histories you don't know. And, you know, I don't see a lot of uh, critics now excited to roll up their sleeves and delve into those areas they don't know. But, you know, that's that's always been the most exciting part of film criticism for me, the, the process of discovery. And uh, I don't think I would have watched any of these Argentine films if I, if I was confident that I knew what to expect. But... Yeah, that's that's a a much larger issue. Maybe a subject for another time. Why, why sure. we watch about movies? Why we write about them? To speak briefly to that, what was your entry point into uh, Argentinian comedy specifically? Huh, probably Subiela. I think my suburban library growing up had Man, Man Facing Southeast. I'm pretty sure I saw that for okay. the first time in high school. That's that's from the mid '80s. But I don't know. I I think. 
the interest in in Argentine art in general uh, comes from reading a lot. You know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the modernist literary movements of South America in the early to mid 20th century. And and one great thing about the cinema of Argentina is that you know there's this very rich and very recent literary tradition that the movies can be in conversation with. I, I do get a sense that as uh, you've talked about a lot about that, and that's partly why these films resonate uh, with you. Yeah, uh, because, you know, they're they're rooted in something beyond cinema. And like Eric Romer said, I think it was like sometime in the 80s, he said, like, of all the art forms, I think cinema can feed on itself the least. Hmm. You know, for cinema to really be great and Crucially, for cinema to evolve, it has to look to things outside of of other movies. And so, having this this leg in in literary history has just been so constructive for Argentine cinema. An intertextuality, in, in that sense, I guess. Yeah, um, you definitely see that in Inas's work. Um, La Flor is a movie that's basically all about books. Um, yeah. So, so this uh, this literary quality, you know, it, it extends to a lot of Argentine film, and and that's what I I think a lot of the richness comes from. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Wow, you gave you gave quite a list of things that I think people can check out, and you know, hopefully it'll spark a lot of curiosity. I mean, I, I can say if nothing else, I will absolutely be delving deeper into this, though. Well, wonderful. Um, I'll uh, I'll call you up and quiz you sometime. I'm a <laughs> I'm a teacher, so I'm I'm licensed to quiz people. That's... I mean that's that's fair. Uh, it's it's been a bit since my last quiz, but okay. uh, I, I would uh, welcome the opportunity. And again, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service with an ever-changing collection of hand-picked films, from new directors to award winners, and from every country on earth. Mubi offers beautiful, interesting, incredible movies. A new one every single day, always chosen by them. Mubi is available to watch in 190 countries, and the films they pick are guided by local cultures and cinema. With over 9 million members around the globe, they are the world's biggest community of film lovers. And you can stream or download all of their movies anytime, on any screen or device, anywhere. And you'll never see a single ad on Mubi, ever. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Finally, Ben, if people want to follow your work, where can they find you? I contribute weekly to cinephile.info in Chicago. And that's really it. Otherwise, you're just you're going to find me teaching. That's kind of where my head's at these days. You can find uh, me on Twitter at, at @snidell. I'm on Letterboxd. And again, uh, Ben, thank you so much for your for your time today. I really enjoyed uh, talking about this oh, film. I, yes, thank you to everyone who listened to Intermission. And uh, we will see you on the uh, next episode. Bye-bye. Called you on the phone, no one's home. Baby, why leave you all alone? And if it wasn't for the music.